Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, today, we're going to turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 to 14, as Dr. Newfeld presents us a message entitled Armageddon. I want to begin by reading today's text. It's Revelation 16, verses 10 to 14. It says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed." and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. You know, there are a handful of biblical images that are very widely known, even among people who have never read a Bible. Armageddon is one of them. Now, in popular literature, it refers to any disaster that wipes out the human race. And and so, for example, all the way back in 1998, a Hollywood movie was entitled Armageddon. It was a disaster film about an asteroid that was threatening to collide with the Earth. And in response, NASA sends out heroes to land on and, and drill into the surface of the asteroid and detonate a nuclear bomb to destroy it and thus, at least so it's hoped, avoid Armageddon. And that's the idea. Armageddon, the way it's used in popular culture, refers to any event that has the potential of destroying all life on Earth. You know, sometimes we hear about people who warn that if we don't draw back from the proliferation of nuclear arms, well, we're heading for a nuclear Armageddon. All life is going to be destroyed. And and that's what Armageddon means in popular culture. Now, if you asked most people where the idea of Armageddon comes from, I mean, they would say the Bible. And some might even say, You know, it's in the book of Revelation. But of course, in the Bible, Armageddon is not the extinction of all life on earth. Rather, it depicts the last great battle. And interestingly enough, it's the battle between the nations of the earth against the return of Jesus Christ. That's why the earth loses. And it's a curious term. The word in Revelation 16, 16 seems to be a Greek equivalent from the Hebrew. Probably the word is Har-Megiddon. Har means mountain in the Hebrew language, and so the word seems to refer to the mountain of Megiddo. Now, I'll come back to that mountain part in just a bit, but here only to say that there is no mountain in Israel or in the world, as far as I know, that's called Mount Megiddo. But the reference is clearly to what has been called the Plains of Megiddo, or what has also been called the Valley of Jezreel. So if you go to Israel, the Valley of Jezreel is a large fertile plain. It's it's used for farming, and it's located in the lower or the southern region of Galilee. If you still can't get it, think about it this way. It's in the southern part of North Israel. And originally, the book of Joshua tells us that when Israel conquered the land of Canaan, Megiddo was then a Canaanite royal city. 
In the history of Israel, that piece of land or that very wide, fertile plain was the scene of a few important and dramatic events. Because of its location, it became a major trade route. So if you can imagine whether you're coming up from the south, that is, you're coming up from Egypt or maybe the rest of Africa, or whether you're coming down from the north, that is, from Syria and Assyria and Babylon, Persia, places that we now refer to as the Middle East, all trade routes in the ancient world went through Israel. And if a war developed, armies would march through Israel. And if you ever wanted to stop an army from getting to you, the best place to stop them was in Israel. And the plains of Jezreel is a wide open valley, and it's the best place to line up troops for battle. Now, King Solomon knew that. When he became Israel's most successful king, that is, success in terms of military prowess and wealth and the size of the nation, well, Solomon saw the importance of that vast valley immediately. In 1 Kings 9.15, it says that he built up Megiddo. Now, Megiddo, if you go there today, is actually called Tel Megiddo. It's a very large mound, or if you will, it's a hill. Perhaps you might even call it a mountain, but it's a strategic place. It overlooks the entire valley. And Solomon realized the importance of this place to control all traffic going through the area. And so he built that city on the top of a mound, fortified it with chariots and large military garrisons, and regulated all traffic from there. He was not going to take the chance of invaders making it into the valley from the north. Now, in the history of Israel, that place, Megiddo, becomes the site of one of Israel's great tragedies. You, you read about it in 2 Kings chapter 23. King Josiah, who is the last righteous king of Judah, recognizes the importance of that location. And in his day, the king of Egypt, a man named Pharaoh Necho, decided to move his troops from Egypt, go north into warfare against the Babylonians. King Josiah tried to prevent him, and the two armies met at Armageddon. And the war ended in disaster. King Josiah was killed on the battlefield, and Judah was utterly defeated. And following the death of King Josiah, Judah spiraled very quickly downward and eventually was completely destroyed by the Babylonians. Josiah's death on the battlefield on the plains of Megiddo marked the death of the hope of Israel. After Armageddon, they were, they were actually doomed. You know, in later history of the Old Testament, that event, that is, the death of Josiah at Armageddon, well, it becomes a symbol for the judgment of God. So let me take you to one of the last books of the Old Testament, and it's the book of Zechariah. Zechariah predicted that in the latter days, that is, the days when this world would come to an end and the kingdom of God would rule, something, something amazing would happen to the Jewish people. So I'm reading from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when you look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn son. You know, since this is a prophecy about the end of the age, the coming of the kingdom of God, many New Testament scholars have thought that the fulfillment of this prophecy is found in the second coming of Christ. Jesus returns. He's the one whom they have pierced. 
And all Israel mourns and weeps in deep repentance for having rejected their Messiah. Now, the next verse is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 11, and it says, On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Now, Hadad Ramon would have been a very small town near the plains of Megiddo. So the weeping that Zechariah is referring to is how Israel wept in that town on the day when righteous King Josiah died in battle. They wept bitterly. They were filled with inconsolable grief. And here's what the prophet Zechariah is saying. When Israel sees the one whom they have pierced in the end of the age, and they become aware of their own sins, Israel will weep as bitterly as she wept when Josiah died on the plains of Armageddon. That's the greatest weeping one can imagine. So I hope you see then that in the minds of the Jewish people, Armageddon is a symbol of despair and defeat and the end of hope and the place of inconsolable weeping. So it shouldn't surprise us then when John is writing Revelation and he's describing the, the last pouring out of the bowls of God's wrath, that he takes us to the plains of Jezreel and to the armed outcropping of the city of Megiddo overlooking the valley. There God will gather the nations of the earth and the kingdom of Antichrist, and there he will extinguish the hope of the experiment of the kingdom of man. The idea of building a civilization without God will come to ruin in that place. And as we're going to see later in Revelation 18, verse 11, the merchants of the earth are going to mourn and weep the city of man. They're going to cry aloud because their source of income is gone. You know, Psalm 68, verses 1 to 2 says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him will flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Armageddon is the last great battle to be sure, but it's really not to be compared with an asteroid hitting the earth or the long night of a nuclear winter. Those images are often associated with what we can do to prevent disaster. Indeed, Armageddon is about war. It's about the last final battle when all the kingdoms of the earth gather and fight against the return of Christ. It's a battle over who owns this earth, God or man. So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp, how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now, they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Neufeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. Please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca today.
Revelation 16 depicts seven angels who've been given seven bowls filled with God's wrath. And at the command of God, each angel pours his bowl out upon the earth. The first causes sores and boils on everyone who worships the beast. The second kills the oceans. The third kills the fresh water. And the fourth causes the sun to overheat the earth and result in severe heat. Now we come to the fifth angel, and I'm reading Revelation 16, verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. You know, I've noticed that in each case, the bowls that are poured out are not splashed out or randomly poured out. You see, in each case, the bowls are poured out onto a specific place. Now, the first bowl is poured out onto the earth in general, but the second onto the sea, the third onto the rivers, the fourth onto the sun, and this one is poured out directly onto the throne of the beast. See, in each case, God is specifically directing his wrath. So when the fifth bowl is poured out, it becomes absolutely certain that the kingdom of the beast is the direct target of the anger of God. Now, we do know from Romans 1, 18 and following that, that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness of men. But now in the last days, the wrath of God specifically focuses on the demonic civilization of the Antichrist. And as with other bowls, we notice that this plague of darkness is similar to one of the plagues that fall on the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus. You know, the ninth plague just prior to the death of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, that plague that broke all resistance, that plague was precipitated by a plague of darkness. It's as if God is highlighting the darkness of the kingdom of Antichrist. And so you need to imagine first unbearable heat, and now it's matched with darkness. And at this point in time, there can be no mistaking of the fact that, that these aren't chance occurrences. By the time of the third plague in Egypt, Pharaoh's magicians announced to him that this could be nothing other than the finger of God. And I have no doubt it is the same in the kingdom of Antichrist. Antichrist's advisors will inform him that the God of heaven is fighting against him. But like Pharaoh, the Antichrist hardens his heart. He has no interest in repenting. His gate is set and the people of the earth follow him. The passage also indicates that combined with the darkness is intense pain. Now, is this the pain of a world where drinking water is scarce and where everyone's inflicted with painful sores, where, where heat makes life unbearable, and, and now on top of that darkness? Well, whatever the reason for the physical pain, those who are afflicted begin to curse God. They will not repent. We move now to the sixth bowl. It's in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, you'll immediately notice that this bowl is different from the rest because it doesn't inflict a plague. Rather, it prepares the way for a final battle. You know, in my last message, I pointed out that there are a number of points of similarity between the blowing of the trumpets and the pouring out of the bowls. You know, when the sixth trumpet was blown, four angels bound at the river Euphrates are released, and they kill a third of mankind. And just like then, the sixth bowl is focused on the Euphrates. So why is that? Well, in the Old Testament, the Euphrates is often seen as the boundary to the promised land. And furthermore, both the Assyrians and the Babylonians who captured Israel 
Well, they came from the region of the Euphrates. So it seems to me that the Euphrates is a symbol of invading armies marching to do destructive warfare, the kind of warfare that, that utterly defeats the enemies. And some Bible teachers think that, that because it is the Euphrates, these armies are marching on Israel. Now, the question that's often asked is, who are these kings of the East and why are they on the move? And some argue that these kings are coming from the East, first of all, to do battle with the Antichrist. And I, I suppose that's possible. But, but in the end, as we're going to see, these kings actually join forces with the Antichrist. But whatever motivates the mobilization of these kings, well, verses 13 and 14 are very important. It says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now, it's been pointed out that the dragon, who's Satan, the beast, who's the Antichrist, and the false prophet, who's, well, he's the religious advisor and supporter, well, these three form a kind of a demonic trinity. But what do we make of the frogs that come out of their mouths? So from my perspective, the demonic inspiration of what they're doing, demons come out to perform strong signs, encouraging the entire world to go to war. You know, some Bible teachers believe that the three kings from the East may have come in an act of rebellion against the Antichrist because of the chaos that now exists on the earth. But the unclean frogs convince them that there's enough power available in the kingdom of the Antichrist that they can even overthrow the power of God himself. I suppose that's possible, but, but it is, of course, some speculation there. But it does seem that the kings of the earth become convinced by these frogs that they can wage war against God, who is pouring out wrath on them, and in anger and with unrepentant hearts, they prepare for war. The text says the kings of the whole world assemble for battle in the great day of God, the Almighty. That's not a phrase that's common in the Bible. You know, as we've seen, the Old Testament most often refers to the day of the Lord, and the New Testament has several different names for the same day. Yeah, it's true. First Thessalonians 5 verse 2 calls it the day of the Lord. Philippians 1 verse 10 calls it the day of Christ. And it's important to keep in mind that all of those terms speak of the very same day. In fact, given all of these terms, sometimes, you know, for example, 1 Corinthians 3.13, it's simply called the day, as we know that we're talking about the same thing. Or in 2 Peter 3, verse 12, it's simply called the day of God. What all these terms have in common is that this day belongs to God. Now, of course, every day belongs to God. He makes each new day, and each day exists out of his permission and in keeping with his purposes. But this day, well, Zechariah 14, verse 7 says, it's a day unlike any other day. And most of us can understand that if we think about it. I mean, we all live one day at a time, but some days are quite unlike the rest. I mean, the day of our wedding, for instance, it's unlike every other day. But this day will be different from every day since the creation. This is the day when God wins, bringing both salvation and damnation in a single day. On this day, all of God's intention for this earth are brought to a head. 
You remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem in the beginning of Passion Week, and the week that would end in his crucifixion. And at that time, crowds were lining the streets and they were shouting, you know, Hosanna to the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the crowds anticipating that this was the beginning of the day of the Lord when the king would come and rule his creation and that would begin in Jerusalem. But now on this occasion, the king is coming to rule the creation. And at this moment, John sees hatred against God. The nations gather, bolstered by demonic miracles, believing they can stop this great triumphant ride. Again, please notice, Armageddon is not the battlefield where the kings of the East are fighting against the kingdom of Antichrist. No, no. It's the gathering of all of the kings of the earth to overthrow the return of Jesus and to stop him from establishing his eternal kingdom. Now, as I've said, the tribulation. Well, it's merely an intensification of the evil that's already existed in this world. See, the kingdoms of this world have never welcomed the Christ. There has, since the creation of the world, been a long war against God and his purposes. But in the end of the age, this hatred will have reached a hostility that's never been seen before. Now, if you're wondering if Armageddon is merely symbolic of this battle or whether the nations actually gather on that specific place, that ground, well, I'll leave that to you to decide. From my vantage point, since Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, these nations are flooding in towards Jerusalem to prevent that, and the battle is set on that very ground. The last war on this planet will be a battle between the kingdoms of this earth and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Armageddon. The great news is this, Christ wins. His purposes will never fail, for he is Lord and King. John, I was wondering when you're going to get to this message about Armageddon, because it really is something that's so vivid for people, but yet so misunderstood. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because it does, it's just one of those words that I think everybody in our culture has heard. I mean, they've never cracked their Bible in their lives, but they know about Armageddon. Now, you know, as I mentioned, they are misinformed about it, but I think the the biblical message of Armageddon, the last great battle, um, and the kings of the earth fighting against the return of Christ, uh, resisting the kingdom of God coming to this earth, I mean, all of those things have taken upon themselves life of their own, but we have a sense that we're racing towards a date with destiny. Thanks, John. We appreciate your message today. And remember to join us again right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. 
Please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.